today we are going to be continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount uh, and also uh, finishing the first section uh, known as the Beatitudes. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew 5. We're going to be in verses 8 through 12. Uh, it's, I think, on page 810 in your pew Bibles, if you're, you're using those. So Matthew 5. Uh, as we've learned the last two weeks, uh, these uh, attitudes, these are, these are heart attitudes or heart postures that actually define uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, uh, these that, that are listed are heart postures of true Christians, uh, and as with the last two weeks, I want to start us out with exactly the same question for us to, to kind of consider and ponder. What does it mean to be truly happy? Uh, happy in the deepest sense. What does it mean to be truly happy? Or, or what does it mean to be blessed? So again, if you were to list out eight character qualities that you desire in your life, what would they be? If you were to list out eight character qualities that you desire in your life, what would they be? Uh, so we turn again to seeing how Jesus answers those questions in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's dive into the text. We're going to read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This morning, uh, we're going to be focusing on the last three Beatitudes found in verses 8 through 12. And our three main points for this morning are these. Number one, a, a Christian life is focused and holy. Number two, a Christian is a peacemaker. And number three, Christians will be persecuted and blessed. Uh, before we jump in, I want us to see something about the structure of these Beatitudes. Uh, Jesus, as a masterful teacher, doesn't just begin listing these character qualities out randomly. Uh, there, there's actually order and purpose to them, even in how they're listed. Uh, if you think of, of verse 6 as kind of the, the mountaintop, here's how they work. Uh, verses 2 through 6, you'll notice, are all about our need. Uh, so when we're poor in spirit... Uh, we, we know we can't save ourselves. We have need. We know that we need God. Uh, when we mourn sin, uh, we know that we're utterly depraved and that we need Jesus as our Savior. When we're meek, we know we need God's justice and wisdom. 
Uh, we learned that we need him to be our advocate and not ourselves. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we confess that we're not full. Uh, if we hunger for something, well, we have need of something. We need righteousness in all the ways we described last week. Now, at the peak of this mountain, so when our hearts have actually realized their need and their emptiness, look at the promise that Jesus gives us. At the end of verse 6, it says, they shall be satisfied. So we're promised that after we realize our need of him, that God will fulfill us and fill us completely. So that's the top of the mountain. Now, on the way down the mountain, as we're filled, fruit is actually produced in us. We're actually merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, blessed even in the midst of persecution. These are all things that can only happen in a heart that's truly transformed by the Holy Spirit. Again, I want to stress that none of these beatitudes can happen apart from the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts. They don't happen through just buckling down or gritting your teeth or even trying harder. They only happen in a heart that is actually reborn and alive in Christ. So, today, we continue our trek down the mountain with another piece of fruit that's produced in us. Number one, a Christian life is focused and holy. Look with me at verse 8. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a bombshell of a statement. Just kind of stop and meditate on that for a second. Don't, don't just read it over quickly, but read it slow and think on what Jesus says there. I'm going to actually give us just a second to read it again and let it marinate. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, Jesus is saying, this is what it means to be truly happy. Blessed, happy in the deepest sense of the word. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by pure in heart? Well, let's first define what he means by the word heart. Uh, Most people, when they hear the word heart, immediately jump to emotions, particularly love. Uh, you, You hear things like, follow your heart or listen to your heart, or that guy's got a lot of heart. In scripture, uh, the heart certainly includes the emotions, but it's so, so, so much more. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, according to the general scriptural usage of the term, the heart means the center of the personality. It does not merely mean the seat of affections and the emotions. This beatitude is not a statement to the effect that the Christian faith is something primarily emotional, not intellectual, or pertaining to the will. Not at all, he says. The heart in scripture includes the three. It is the center of man's being and personality. It is the fount out of which everything else comes. It includes the mind. It includes the will. And it includes the heart. 
It is the total man. That's what Jesus is emphasizing here. He's targeting the whole man, mind, will, emotions. And he's saying, the one who's pure in these things will be truly happy. Now, uh, throughout scripture, the heart, we got to actually realize from the beginning, the heart is actually the problem center for all of man's issues and troubles. In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So maybe listening to or following your heart isn't such a wise thing. Uh, understand this. So we often think that the man's biggest issue is his or her environment. If we think if we could just get this guy out of the wrong crowd, or if we could just get, get him out of poverty or out of this or that, he'd do the right thing. If, if I could just have this thing or do that thing, if I had enough time or money, I'd honor God. It's all about my environment. But here's the issue. Our, our problem isn't our environment. It's our hearts, according to Scripture. Think about this. Adam and Eve, they were in the perfect environment, in the garden. They were in paradise. And yet, they rebelled against God. Their hearts sinned against God, which led to their sinful actions. So, left to ourselves, our hearts are not pure. Our hearts are not naturally God-focused. But let's ask the second question. What does Jesus mean by pure? He said, blessed are the pure in heart. Well, he seems to mean at least two truths that actually go together. First, a pure heart means a heart that isn't hypocritical. A heart that isn't hypocritical. So you've heard the phrase probably two-faced. But, but here, Jesus is talking about not being two-hearted. A, a pure heart is a heart that's single, singular. It's single-minded. It's open with nothing hidden. It's not divided. Uh, the psalmist seems to capture this well. In Psalm 86, verse 11, he says this. He says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart. To fear your name. So a pure heart is a heart that's united, not divided. It's one. It's pure. So think about uh, the phrase pure gold. It's not half gold. It's not half something else. Pure gold is one essence. Uh, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard in this book summed this up well. Uh, his title, Purity of Heart is to Will... One thing, uh, tr true purity of heart is full of faith. It's full of trust in God. Uh, James points this out in James 1, verses 5 through 8. James 1, 5 through 8, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So purity of heart is actually the opposite of double-mindedness. It's a heart that's fully directed uh, at God and fully trusting in God for all things. But purity of heart also carries with it this meaning of being cleansed. In other words, moral purity. We see this as an important theme all throughout Matthew and elsewhere in the scriptures. In fact, Psalm 24 that we read earlier, Psalm 24 verses 3 through 4, uh, seems to be a direct allusion that Jesus is referencing here in the Sermon on the Mount. Psalm 24, 3 through 4 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This seems to be the point that Jesus is actually making to the Pharisees as well in Matthew 23 that we read earlier. Matthew 23, 24 through 28 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. He goes on in verse 27 to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So all the, the outer cleanness in the world doesn't matter. Is your heart clean? That's what Jesus is saying there. If the heart isn't pure, it doesn't matter. He's saying, clean your heart that the outside also may be clean. So inner purity is inner righteousness, which actually manifests itself in outer righteousness. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, God says to the prophet Samuel, he says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Christianity is not first and foremost a religion of externals. It's not about how many good deeds you've done. It's not about how many charities you've served. It's about your heart. The Lord looks on the heart. Is your heart pure? At the end of the day, I see that both of these ideas of purity actually go together. Uh, If you're single-hearted, if you're focused on God, committed to the kingdom and its righteousness, you'll be inwardly pure. Uh, Ultimately, being pure in heart means to be like Jesus Christ himself. He who, uh, 1 Peter 2.22 tells us, committed no sin, speaking of Jesus, He committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. To be pure in heart means to keep the great commandment perfectly. Matthew 22, 37 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So, 
If we're convinced by the scriptures that none of us is pure in heart, the question is, how can we be? How can we be pure in heart and blessed in the fullest sense? Well, simply through turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. Again, he's the only one in history who was 100% pure in heart. He's the only one who was fully morally pure. He's the only one who, who was wholly focused on God and with no hypocrisy. So when we confess our sin and admit that we're not that and believe in Jesus, we can have our hearts cleansed. 1 John 1, 5-9 says this. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him was no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So purity of heart means having a heart that's cleansed by Jesus' blood. Purity of heart means seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You can have a pure heart this very moment by letting go of your sin and trusting Jesus to take it fully and completely. This is the promise actually of the new covenant made all the way back in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 verses 24 through 26 says this, God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Then in verse 26, he makes this promise. God says, I, and, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What an amazing promise. No matter where your heart is at this very moment, you can be made clean. You can be giving, given a new heart through faith in Jesus. Now, look at this amazing promise that goes with it. Each of these beatitudes has a promise that's connected to it. Blessed are the pure in heart. And here's the promise. For they shall see God. I think of Moses in Exodus 33:20. He asked to see God, right? And this is God's response to him, verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 37, says this, 
And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. But here, we're promised that the pure in heart will see God. As with the other Beatitudes, there's kind of an already but not yet aspect to this. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones helpfully says this. He says, in a sense, there's a vision of God even while we are in this world. Christian people can see God in a sense that nobody else can. The Christian can see God in nature, whereas the non-Christian cannot. The Christian sees God in the events of history. There is a vision possible to the eye of faith that no one else has. But there is a seeing also in the sense of knowing him, a sense of feeling he is near and enjoying his presence. That is something that is possible to us here and now. I love that. The pure in heart will see God here and now in many ways. They'll see him everywhere, actually. The one who's most pure in heart will have the most communion with God in the present tense. And then in another sense, that's the, the already, but in another sense, there's the, the not yet. We haven't seen God fully, but we know that 1 John 3, 2-3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So one day we will see God face to face. Think about that, Christian. You are being prepared to enter the presence of the King of Kings. You're being prepared to see God. You see the the depth of this statement. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's a promise. So number one, a Christian life is focused and holy. Number two, a Christian is a peacemaker. Look with me at verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. First, I want us to notice that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peaceful. But instead he says, blessed are the peacemakers. You say, well, come on, what's the difference? It's entirely possible for us to be peaceful kind of sitting back in your hammock, reading a book, listening to the waves, while not being reconciled. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And why I point this out is this. Jesus is not, hear me loud and clear, Jesus is not advocating some peace at any price, pacifism that says just anything to avoid trouble. Uh, This would actually be to avoid justice and righteousness, which Jesus just told us is what we should hunger and thirst for. Peace at any price doesn't lead to peace, but instead to appeasement. And this usually doesn't solve the problem. On the other hand, 
Peacemaking isn't about violence at any cost. If you're familiar with Wyatt Earp, uh, his pistol was called a Colt Peacemaker. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about either. So, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? A couple of things. First, somewhat passively, a peacemaker is peaceable or not quarrelsome. While we've already said that it's much, much more than that, it's definitely not less. Uh, Second, a peacemaker must make peace actively. A peacemaker must make peace actively. So he doesn't just live and let live or just kind of try to keep the status quo. Instead, he or she goes after peace and does all they can to produce peace and to maintain it. There's so much more that we could say here, but I want us to understand that there's both a vertical and a horizontal aspect to peacemaking. Uh, Vertically, a peacemaker is someone who's urgently concerned about others' peace with God. So true and lasting peace can never be achieved until hearts are actually transformed. As we learned in that last beatitude, our problems, and therefore our lack of peace, actually originates in our hearts. It doesn't matter what kind of solution we come up with to to make peace. If our hearts are still bent on sin and self, we're actually doomed. So peacemaking begins with a concern for peace with God. This happens first and foremost through sharing the gospel. I want to read to us Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah 52, verse 7 says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So to bring good news is to publish peace. Or to publish salvation, Isaiah says. Look at how Paul quotes that that text out of Isaiah in Romans 10, verses 13 through 17. Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Here we go. He says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So sharing the gospel is a huge part of being a peacemaker. Is that your heart? Do you have compassion on those who don't know Christ? Compassion enough to preach peace to them. Compassion enough to be a vertical peacemaker. So there's a vertical aspect to peacemaking. But there's also a horizontal aspect to peacemaking. While I wish I had more time to dive into this, I do want to recommend a couple books on this topic, both by a guy named Ken Sandy. Uh, his best-selling book, The Peacemaker, a really helpful, practical book on what it looks like to pursue peace horizontally uh, amidst 
people to people. Uh, then this book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, it's kind of the Cliff Notes version of that. So if you don't want to read the big version, really helpful, practical uh, book on what it, what it looks like. So a couple books there, but uh, very quickly, here are a couple pieces of biblical practical advice for what it looks like to be a peacemaker. First, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. Uh, This is what James says in James chapter one, and I believe it's the first step to actually being a peacemaker. So do you listen to others well? Are you slow to speak? In other words, when you hear gossip, are you quick to share it or slow? When you hear something hurtful about someone, do you run and share it with them? This isn't helpful and doesn't promote peace. So first, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Second, view everything in light of the gospel. View everything in light of the gospel. So when you're in a situation that that lacks peace somehow, do you first of all think of yourself? Or do you think about the gospel and the implications of the gospel in that situation? Do you move toward selflessness and toward the gospel being displayed through the situation? Do you magnify and make much of Christ through the conflict? So second, view everything in light of the gospel. Third, go out of your way to make peace. Proverbs 25, 21 says this, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Romans 12, 17 through 21 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. No one said peacemaking would be easy. It's hard. But Jesus did say it would lead to true happiness. And look at, again, the wonderful promise that comes with this. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, like father, like son. Why will peacemakers be called sons of God? Well, because they're behaving like their father. They're behaving like God. Over and over and over and over again, the Bible uh, calls God the God of peace. Uh, Again, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, if God stood upon his, his rights and dignity, upon his person, every one of us, and the whole of mankind would be consigned to hell, an absolute perdition. It is because God is a God of peace that he sent his son and thus provided a way of salvation for us. To be a peacemaker is to be like God and like the son of God. 
So remember that Jesus himself is actually called the Prince of Peace. Well, why is he called the Prince of Peace? Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, For in him, speaking of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is our peace through the blood of his cross. That's how our hearts can actually be made new. That's how peace is made with God and with man. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 13 through 19. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So to make peace is to be like Jesus. While we can't atone for sin the way that he did, we can preach peace through sharing his gospel. We can seek reconciliation with others in his name. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So number one, a Christian life is focused and holy. Number two, a Christian is a peacemaker. And third and finally, Christians will be persecuted and blessed. Very quickly, look with me at verses 10 through 12. Jesus finishes this by saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Because of uh, the lack of time, I want to just give you a couple of brief comments here. First, notice the inevitability of persecution for the the true citizen of of the kingdom. While uh, we may not experience martyrdom here in the United States for for following Christ, we will experience persecution. We will be reviled. We will have evil uttered against us. If you're truly living a holy life, you will be persecuted. Whether it's simply being looked down upon or not considered for a promotion, or even maybe maybe verbally abused. I don't know what it'll look like. But if you truly follow Jesus, you can expect persecution. You should also note that this persecution isn't persecution because you're a jerk or just objectionable all the time. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the persecuted. It's persecution for righteousness. And then he goes on to say, on my account. 
Uh, I know people who just like to be controversial for controversialness sake. And when they get pushed back, they say, I'm being persecuted because of righteousness. No, you're being persecuted because you're a jerk. Jesus promises blessing for persecution for righteousness. Simply put, this means being persecuted for being like Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus came into the world, his righteousness exposed the evil of the world. His righteousness exposed hypocrisy. His righteousness exposed lying and selfishness and every other sin that you can think of. His righteousness brought about conviction. Yours will too. The more you look like Christ, the more it's going to affect people, both positively and negatively. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 through 16. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Paul says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Again, hear me loud and clear on this. We're not, pers- we're not to be persecuted for being jerks. We're not going looking for persecution. But... If you're not experiencing for some sort of persecution, ask the question, why not? Too often, it means that we're not experiencing persecution because we look too much like the world. We're not being persecuted for righteousness' sake because we're actually not living righteous lives. When we live righteous lives, we'll, we will be distinct. We're going to stand out. Our lives will be convicting to those around us. To those who have the Holy Spirit, it's going to be a sweet fragrance. To those who don't, Paul says it's the stench of death. All of these Beatitudes have dealt with postures of the heart. But this one at the end is a blessing in the midst of a circumstance. You see how backwards that seems? Again, the world would not say that you're blessed if you're being persecuted or reviled. But Jesus says in the midst of that, that we should rejoice. Think about that. Only a a redeemed heart can take that statement seriously. Only a, a Christian with the Holy Spirit living inside of them can rejoice in the midst of persecution. Why? Well, because we know that this life isn't the end of the story. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we know that we will be too. Citizens of the kingdom have souls that will live forever with Christ. And he tells us that our reward will be great in heaven. So this is the portrait of a blessed life. A life that realizes its absolute poverty and need of Christ. A life that that mourns sin. A life that trusts God to avenge. A life that craves righteousness. A life that is merciful 
and has eyes to see those in need of mercy, a life of moral purity and focus on God, a peacemaking life, and a life of joy even in the midst of persecution. This is what kingdom citizenship looks like. This, according to Jesus, is a life of full and deep happiness. This is what it looks like to be truly blessed. Let's pray.